0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational co- podcast. I am Elisa von Jurden your host, and I'm here with two of my co-hosts, Irena Victoria Massimino and Hoshman Ismael. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. We are very, very honored today to have a special guest, Yehia Tashjian who is a specialist in um, international relations and global politics. And he will be here discussing various things with us today. Turkish foreign policy, the war, the recent war, the second Artsakh war, the recent war in Nagorno-Karabakh, issues of justice and impunity and the way forward. So we are very, very excited to have you here with us today.
1: Thank you, Elisa. Yeah, very welcome, Roshan.
0: Welcome, welcome, Yeah, Thank you so much for being here with us.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And so I would like to introduce Yehia. Um, He is a regional analyst and researcher. Uh, He has graduated from the American University of Beirut in public policy and international affairs. He pursued his BA at Haigazian University in political science in 2013. He founded the New Eastern Politics Forum and blog in 2010, which is one of my favorite news sites. He was a research assistant at the Armenian Diaspora Research Center at Haigazian University. Currently, he is the regional officer of Women in War. I'm excited to hear more about that. A gender-based think tank. He has participated in international conferences in Frankfurt, Vienna, Uppsala, New Delhi, and Yerevan and presented various topics from minority rights to regional security issues. His thesis topic was on China's geopolitical and energy security interests in Iran and the Persian Gulf. He is a contributor to various local and regional newspapers and a presenter of the Turkey Today program in Radio Voice of Van which is something that we are very interested in um, finding access to. So we will ask you to, uh, to tell us how we can get access to Radio Voice of Van. Um, we want to start by expressing our deepest condolences for the passing of your father recently. And um, I'm wondering if you want to say a few words about him for our audience.
2: Uh, thank you, Elisa, for the introduction. Uh so yeah i mean um maybe i'm thankful for him when it comes to my patriotism uh, always balancing because he was a merchant you know he was not um a politician or something and i remember you know he was against uh, me when i told him that i want to study political science he was like why are you are gonna not study business because you have to continue my uh, <laughs> i was like i'm not a business person uh so yeah, and uh, for his memory, like uh, my mother and I, we discussed that uh, we want to fund a small, maybe, library in nagorno Karabakh. Uh, this is also to keep his memory alive, at the same time to educate and prepare maybe future political experts or politicians or researchers uh, in nagorno Karabakh in Artsakh.
0: I think that's, that's a wonderful initiative. It's very exciting. And we encourage our listeners to keep up to date with that. If you send us re- regular updates, we will publish them so that sure. uh, yeah. people can sure. follow the development of this library. It's a great idea. Yeah. And will you state yeah. your father's name?
2: Uh, Sarkis. He was, he was Sarkis Tashtian, his name.
0: Sarkis Tashtian. So, so we'll dedicate today's uh, interview to your father. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Okay, We are very sorry, and I I hope he rests in peace. Yes, may God
2: bless all loved ones. Indeed.
0: Yes, indeed. Indeed. So let us start. um, I would like to ask you about yourself a little bit, to start with yourself. And I wonder if you will let us know where you were raised Mm -hmm. um, and how you became interested in international affairs.
2: Uh, Yes, actually... um, I like. I remember the first article I wrote. I was almost 5, 15 or 16 years old, something like this. It was, uh, it, uh, it was something about Armenia and so on. So this gave me a bit sense of patriotism, and uh, my friends all around me were, um, they were thinking to go. I don't know, become engineer, businessman, banking banker, and so on. I was like, I want to live in a different world. Uh, so I like politics because my dad used to encourage me reading a lot. So every week I remember he used to uh, buy a book Uh, so and my um, family or my relatives they all come from different political backgrounds and so on so some were social democrats other liberals other nationalists other anarchists so it was a very colorful uh, family Uh, so um, I was like 18 years old and so on so I was like Okay, I want to make a political science. So I went to the university, and all my friends they discouraged me, even my family members, saying that, you know, you will become penniless, you will not uh, make a profit or something. I was like,
3: unless you okay. become a politician. And, yes.
2: um, and I always wanted, like, I tried to also differentiate that I don't want to become a politician, but a political expert, uh, because I always dislike the politicians. Maybe because I'm also Lebanese, because like all the, I mean there is no like moral someone in Lebanon that he can or he can, or she can encourage you or inspire you uh so you know I was v- like i was very good um uh, in my grades it was almost above 90 so i recorded and i was like i will start to research more also research not just like studying what the classes were offering but making additional research and uh, internships and so on so I graduated in 2013 then wanted to continue for masters but because of financial issues and so on so I took a break but at the same time I participated in different conferences and exchange programs so I, look, I make a strong background so I took the scholarship at the American University of Beirut and did uh, my masters uh, the topic I chose like something special So all my friends were saying like do something about army. I was like I'm living already like in army and like atmosphere. I don't want. I want to make something new. So it was the China and Iran. Um, It was a bit challenging because the topic was for me challenging. But now I realized it's a contemporary topic. It's very important topic, Uh, and this also pushed me to open a bit towards Asia. So I traveled to New Delhi exactly one year ago. Uh, I gave a conference there, so maybe, I don't know, I'm thinking to do my PhD in somewhere in Asia, China, or India, but now I want to refresh my brain, so I don't want to go direct to PhD. Um, but this is my aim. I don't know, because I see that Asia, Asian countries are rising, India, China, Japan, so the future of politics is there.
0: Ah, oh, that's great. That's really interesting. And and I, I, I assume that will become very relevant when we talk about... Um, Armenia's options for the future, yeah? Okay, Uh, that's wonderful. But let's start uh, by talking about the recent war in um, Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh. We've been covering that recent war. We've been very concerned about it, like many people. Um, And, you know, we've been particularly concerned about the active role that Turkey was playing as an ally of Azerbaijan. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you see Turkey's role in <laughs> the the war, the second Artsakh War, and what you think it means about Azerbaijani and Turkish foreign policy in the future.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, Elisa, I was not surprised the Turkish involvement in Artsakh. I would have been surprised if Turkey didn't interfere or intervene in this war. Because um, already, I remember, in uh, it was in June, or July, I think June. June 2020, there were clashes a bit uh, in the Azerbaijani and Armenian border, not in nagorno karabakh but in the north. Uh, and there was a Turkish, you know, also like the Turkish leader, special Erdogan. President Erdogan, he was calling that... Armenia should withdraw from Galapag, Galapag is Azerbaijan la- land, it is Islamic land, so we should liberate. So, this tone was increasing. The problem is that I'm very critical of the Armenian government because they thought that this is a joke, Turkey would yes. not interfere, Russia would protect them. They were very naive when it comes to geopolitical calculations. The problem is that things are changing, and Syria is the greatest example that today Russia and Turkey, historical enemies, they are cooperating and fairly well in Syria. They did also in Libya. So sometimes you see that the big geopolitical rivals, they can cooperate in a certain points. So why not in Nagorno-Karabakh? They could have divided Nagorno-Karabakh, and this is what happened. Um, Armenia didn't took, uh, didn't take into consideration all these geopolitical uh, developments. There were major exercises. There were three military exercises between Azerbaijan and Turkey. You know, we were aware that the Turkish drone by Akhtar was going to be used in a future war, but again, the Armenians didn't buy anti-drone missiles, instead they bought Sukhoi, which is a fighter, and Mm -hmm. without the missiles. Um, And also another thing that when it comes to foreign policy, I mean, I come from also an NGO background and so on, but when it comes to international security and uh, foreign policy or national security, I always try to differentiate, because uh, you cannot, like, yes, human rights and uh, NGO and activism is very important in politics, in domestic politics, but when it comes to foreign sec- uh, policy or security, you cannot mix them because when it comes to foreign policy or sec- international security, you should be a very hardliner. Sometimes this contradicts with the human rights notions. Um, the Amiens, they thought that, you know, they are preparing for peace. They are a democratic government. The West will have them, smiley face and everything by promoting the LGBT, everyone will help them. This is not the case. (laughs) Because, you know, this, and I was always warning that domestic politics politics is something, international politics is something. But the problem is that they mixed it. And they didn't take into consideration that, Mm -hmm. you know, one Mm -hmm. day maybe Russia and Turkey would cooperate or Iran would not interfere and help Armenia. They didn't take into consideration all these things.
3: Do you think, uh, uh, Jagia, that what do you think uh, the changes in the internal government in Armenia maybe recently have made this naiveness? Or why do you think Armenia is so naive to this geopolitical scenario? Uh,
2: to some extent, yes. First, uh, in 2016, there was also a mini war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. And there were negotiations that there was the famous Lavrov plan, where, which was made by the f- Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Ravlov, that Armenia will be withdrawn from five regions adjacent to Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the two regions which were wa- which are connecting or a uh, land bridge between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia was going to be under Russian or de facto Armenian control until. The both sides, that is the Azerbaijan and Armenia, decide the status of Nagorno Karabakh or Artsakh. This was Serge Sagristian planning. Uh, for me, maybe for Armenian, I consider all Artsakh Armenian historical Armenian territory, but also mm-hmm. it should be very realist, that if you cannot control all these regions and you know that war is coming and you cannot win a war, then okay, compromise is good as as long as you are taking something in return. The Lavrov plan was good because it was going to give a legal status for Nagorno-Karabakh. Something now it didn't have, it doesn't have, um, and unfortunately the current government. It thought that, okay, we don't need to negotiate on everything because we are a democratic country. Azerbaijan is the authoritarian country. So all the world will support Armenia because it is a democratic country. I mean, you know, we know that in <laughs> yeah. international politics it does not happen. You know, like historically the U.S. has supported the Chile, uh, the dictatorship or the Iraqi Saddam. And then, mm. uh, we're, so this is international politics. It's based on interest and not on human rights values. Um so this is, was Armenia, like they avoided negotiation, but at the same time, Azerbaijan even didn't want any compromise solution. Azerbaijan was saying that we want all nagorno all we, we, we are going to war. So uh, it was a very difficult situation. Maybe the war could not be avoided, but at least could have been postponed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Armians didn't play politics. They could have said that okay, we want to compromise. At the same time, they could have prepared themselves, but they didn't do that. They didn't compromise, and they were not even prepared for the Before war. For
3: war, no, neither. Mm-hmm. Terrible scenario for Armenia, yeah. but it looks like they they do not uh, they do not their home they don't do their homework properly when it comes to geopolitics. Never.
2: Hmm. What? And also, they antagonized Russia many times. Uh, you know, like in the Armenian newspapers, those who are very close to the government, they were always criticizing Russia. Uh, they were saying that, you know, human rights does not exist in Russia. I mean, or Iran is not democratic country. Okay, Iran has never been a democratic country in the last one hundred years. Um, so that's very naive when it comes to, especially that you have two regional allies, Iran and Russia, and the others. You, Azerbaijan and Turkey are enemies, and Georgia is like it's a very shaky relation
3: yeah, the yeah. geographical location also doesn't i mean it should show Armenia that it's not a region of human rights respect. I mean it's yeah. located in an area where actually I don't know if one country respect maybe Georgia somehow, but the rest of the countries of the region are very dodgy in their respect of democracy democratic principles and human rights, so mm-hmm
1: but uh, it's, it's very interesting about you have uh, uh, your expertise on China, Iran, and Turkey also, and the connection between them to the Middle East, because in the past um, few years there is a, a very economic interest of connecting China to the Middle East via the Silk Road, is that right? Mm-hmm. That Silk Road. And um, I am just thinking whether all these are connected to that Silk Road because now there is a big pressure on the Sinjar region because they want to connect Baghdad which is like a, a kind of gate to the Gulf countries to Turkey and Turkey um, tries to convince The European country that connects Baghdad and the Gulf country to you know these kind of economic generation and uh, income to Europe but at the same time the tricky is it's already um, kind of in agreement with China that also connects Baghdad to China so I don't know he's playing between between two sides between European and also the Chinese and because I think about 2-3 months ago, or, or maybe more than that, the first train from directly departed from Turkey all the way to China, and yeah. he arrives there in 12 days. And that would be, I think, through Baku, is that right? Or, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So, mm. they want to open that route. I mean, there is a completely a free zone yeah. economy between Azerbaijan and then Turkey without Armenia, because what I'm thinking, because when they wanted to connect Azerbaijan to Europe, they did it by Georgia and passed by Armenia, so the Armenians do not get the income out of it. So you see, they want to, in every way, um, kind of isolate Armenia and make a gateway between Turkey, Azerbaijan, all the way to China and the uh, Southeast. So I wonder, what is yeah. your view on this?
2: Hmm. Uh, definitely they are all interconnected because uh, like as you said, you know, Turkey and Azerbaijan they tried to bypass Armenia when it comes to pipelines and roads and railroads. Through this war actually, uh, Russia tried to play both sides first because China and India now is also interested. Um, like. Before the war, let's say anything that was going to pass from Europe to Asia was going towards uh, from Turkey, that is, Gars, Tiflis, Tbilisi, and Baku. And now the road is actually much longer. If the roads, the railroads pass through Armenia, it is much lesser. So that means uh, the cost will decrease. So everything. This is uh, what Turkey and Azerbaijan were pushing. Mm-hmm. The prime is that all this now the roads will pass through Armenia but Armenia will, will not take any income because these roads will be secured by the Russian f- federal forces oh. Rus- Russian Guard forces This is according to the November 9 agreement, the trilateral agreement oh. after the war no. So, Armenia will not just, will be just a passing road, something like this That the Azerbaijan trucks will pass from Armenia, will say hi and they will pass We are not sure that Armenia will take any profit. But according to the agreement, that Azerbaijan will also open its roads in front of Armenia. But this uh, this needs a lot of investment because in Azerbaijan, already there is a lot of investment in the infrastructure, while the Armenian infrastructure is very underdeveloped. I mean, there was this Armenian plan that I wrote an article about it, the North-South Corridor, that the Indians were also also interested to connect India, Iran, Mm -hmm. Azerbaijan, or Armenia, to Russia and so on. The problem is that uh, Armenia needs $3.5 billion investment to make all these road. Something that the Armenians like unfortunately. Uh, while Azerbaijan is getting a lot of investments from China, uh, from Russia. Uh, uh, so yeah. But if the Armenians they try to get all this investment, they can be uh, very strong regional players because first they have strong diaspora in almost all Mm -hmm. the countries, including Mm -hmm. Iran, even uh, small diaspora sections in China and um, uh, 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 India and also big diaspora in Russia. So they can play Mm -hmm. this role in getting investments Mm -hmm. and so on. Second, because the Armenian ge- ge- geography is very important, that it is at the center of the Caucasus. So all these roads and the path that should have uh, should pass from Armenia, it will be the the travel. The cost of the travel will be less. So it's in the interest of all countries, not just also Armenia. But we will see how the European, uh, the Russian, the Chinese, Indian, and Iranian interests will intersect, and also how Turkey, because the, it is not in the interest of Turkey and. Azerbaijan to see Armenia gaining a lot of investments, because maybe in the future they think that Armenia will take these investments and will try to rearm or organize its army. Yeah,
0: It's such a complicated and difficult situation that Armenia is in. And I'm actually going to jump to a question a little bit further down, which is that this war, this second Artsakh war, is created among many Armenians. Uh, fear for the future existence of Armenia as a state, right, for the continued sovereignty of Armenia. And I'm wondering if you can address this fear and tell us what you think, what are Armenia's best options for the future to guarantee a certain degree, some greater security in the region?
2: Uh, there is a fear. I do have also this fear that in the future Armenia ends up as a, with a union state with Russia. This is what for example the belarusians and the russians were trying um because uh, you are surrounded with enemies you don't have the financial means to survive and if another war comes in the very near future you know that your army is not prepared for it because your military infrastructure is destroyed so you will surrender either to turkey or russia uh that's the problem um the armenian i mean the new government whoever will come it should try to convince Russia, that you know, we are your allies. We uh, we are giving you everything, but you need to arm us. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think Armenia should look also to have a bit diverse foreign policy. They know that India is also interested in Armenia, because we know that India and Pakistan there is this uh, the Kashmir issue and the conflict. At the same time, Pakistan is the Turkey's and Azerbaijan's ally. So naturally, Armenia is going to be. An Indian ally the Indians can play this card well and the army should also play geopolitics card and maybe they can gain Indian investments when I was in New Delhi we talked about this issue uh, with some Indian officials and deputy ministers directly hmm. They were happy, but they were waiting the Armenian invitation what the Armenian wants from India the same goes to giant China China made now a Huge investment deal with Iran. Armenia can also make a similar deal. The problem is that the current government—they—they they are very pro-West, and they are yeah. thinking that the West will help them. Okay, yeah. you know, if if the Americans will liberate okay, I will put the American flag in my bill. <laughs> that, you know, like we need—we don't need, um, uh, like, how should I say, and like promises. We need yeah. work. If yeah. if the Europeans will have, great. Why not? Uh, but the problem is that geopolitics cannot be mixed with domestic politics or human rights values. Uh, so hopefully the new government i think the elections are in june though though i'm not very optimistic because what i'm feel that the new the same people will come because the the people are still uh, not they haven't done their last decision when it comes to whether they will support this uh the current government or the other ones uh let's see but i'm not very optimistic that a lot of things will change in the next election but at least hopefully that the new government Will try to activate its foreign policy and have a more proactive foreign policy. Otherwise, Mm. they will end up like a client state to Russia, nothing more.
0: Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Irene. You look like you had a question. Yeah, yeah? it
3: looks like that. You know, we've been we've interviewed a lawyer also, Regia, that is working in Germany with the case of you know uh, the human rights violations. Uh, Gergen
0: Petrosian.
3: Yeah, Yeah. Gergen Petrosian. And, uh, well, we see a little bit of work in the different diasporas, but it does look, like you said, that uh, the Armenian government has a very Western perspective of geopolitics. And I think this is uh, uh, the problem of Armenia. It's a problem of many countries that are located in between big powers, right? You have Turkey on one side, you have Russia on one side, nearby, somehow you have China and then India, and those are enormous powers this happened in, in the indian subcontinent as well for example with nepal it gets swollen yeah. by india by and the culture as well and you know there's an imperialist culture of india in the region and i think that's what happened of course with turkey and russia as well So it looks like, well, you need to advise the Armenian government for sure. But it does look like the Armenian government needs, hopefully the new one needs to get set its mind in the idea that even if it has a big economy and a good military, it's still not enough, I think. You need to Mm -hmm. make allies in this world. It's very difficult for a country like that, especially, I think, with the history of, of Armenia, of the genocide that has been unrecognized as well. I think all of that makes Armenia very weak in this scenario I yeah. don't know if you would agree with me
2: yes definitely and I think you know until now it has been 30 years from the independence of Armenia the modern Armenia uh, they need the diaspora to invest a lot in Armenia but not just I'm talking about the financial investment but also political investment mm. this is what mm. I have also suggested that we should see, like, I don't know, diaspora experts, when it comes to in the foreign ministry, in the defense ministry, in the eco, uh, finance, finance ministry, we need to see. Because, uh, like, yes, Armenia doesn't have natural resources, but I always say that diaspora is the natural resources of Armenia, that even big countries lack <laughs> it. That's great.
0: Yeah, it's very nice. It's true. That is very nice. So if you could update our listeners to um, on uh, where Armenia stands domestically in politics, that would be great. There are snap elections coming mm-hmm. and Nicole Pashinyan uh, recently announced that he would be resigning. Is that right?
2: Uh, I think it's a political maneuver because he will <laughs> resign according to the parliamentary system uh the parliament will not elect anyone mm-hmm. so it means that the parliament directly will be dissolved and they are going to um, step elections uh, the problem is that according to the constitution um, uh, it's very tricky and the problem is that all the old people those who preceded uh, nicole Pashan they did it and it is their mistake that even if the for example if an ex-political expo party brings 30 percent of the votes and the others brought one percent. It means that the, the one who brought 30% can become direct majority as if it mm. brought more than 50% So mm. it can eat or swallow the votes of the others. So it means that again they will become a majority and according that This is what I analyze now that Nicole Pacheco will come back again I mean this is unfortunate. Wow. You know someone who, who destroyed the country's economy. It's coming again Interesting. He will come again. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Unless if the opposition opposition unites but still I don't see that uh, I don't even see a political maturity even in the opposition ranks They need need to have a strong vision Uh, It's not just about who's Negol Negot You Mm -hmm. should have a vision about the future of Armenia When it comes to the trilateral agreement, when it comes to the peace, when it comes to the war, the economy The country is sinking in the economy. No one is talking about the economy, but the economy is sinking Uh, You need to get investments Uh, and the future of relationship between Russia and Armenia, all this should be addressed. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, I thought it would happen with the change, well, naive me, right? But the change to the parliamentary system, you know, usually countries that change to a parliamentary system are more um, mature democratically, right? One would think, but it evidently is not the case of Armenia, right?
2: Uh, because the problem is that in Armenia, you no know, most of the political parties uh, they are based on individual initiative. That is, one mm. person defects mm. from political parties, he uh, builds a new political party, he takes like a very colorful uh, names like social democratic, democratic ex party, liberal, <laughs> and you know, it's like a very civilized party, but actually, it's based on one uh, full of person. colors, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Mm. okay, oh. yes, they um, yeah, I, I wonder what uh, what you think about uh, um, probably the future of the region and uh, mm-hmm. the rise the further rise of nationalism in Turkey and uh, especially with um, that um, that um, Turkey um, tries in not uh, just like Armenia or Azerbaijan but also in Mediterranean and um, in in uh, connecting Turkey to the rest of the world. Uh, how does that affect the future of Armenia? Seeing Turkey um, expanding its its control over its borders, beyond its borders, and this the, the fear of genocide.
0: Yeah, Yegia wrote a great. I think I sent this to you guys a great article on the Stratfor map. Uh, so maybe it's fantastic article. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well in answering Hoshman's question. Um,
2: whether we like it or not, Turkey is playing excellent foreign policy. Uh, I remember actually I did my senior seminar when I was doing my BA on Turkey's Zero Problem Foreign Policy. that was or created by Davido, Ahmed Davido, the former... Uh, Foreign Minister or the PM So he orchestrated very nice uh, Foreign policy that was a balanced Foreign policy between the West and the Western Interest at the same time between the East That is the Russian and the Chinese interest And this is what Turkey is now playing Mm. At the same time it is a NATO member uh, all its arms and weapons are made by the U.S. and the Western countries. But at the same time, it is buying weapons from Russia. It has excellent relations with Russia. It has. It is attracting a lot of Chinese investments. You know, like ten years ago, Erdogan was criticizing China on the regarding the Uyghurs, and now he is trying to saying that there is nothing uh, human rights violation against the Uyghurs because we are we want to have a good relations with the China. So he's trying to play with all uh, everyone. In Libya, Turkey has a base. In Somalia, they have a base. In Syria, they have a de facto occupation. Same in Iraq, they have a lot of influence in northern Lebanon. Now they have a military base in Azerbaijan, and uh, they are some. some uh, they also have military agreement with Ukraine, with Kazakhstan, with Uzbekistan. Turkey is expanding. But this is not just a military occupation, but also soft power. For example, even if you go to Pakistan, you know, they, they watch the Turkish series. It's this kind of soft power that they started from 2001 when AKP came to power. Um, and they are very successful. When it comes to Abiyah, I always say that Armenia is rich of history, but I haven't seen any series or movie when it comes to the Armenian history. It's yes. all the movies are about the genocide. You know, okay, the genocide happened, but we have 3,000 years old history, for God's sake. Where yes. is
3: it? True.
2: I mean... Uh, that's the problem question. that the Turks invested a lot on their cultural diplomacy, and this is what they're working. You go to Africa, to America, to anyone, and they talk about the Turkish says, but no one talks about the armies They only know heard about the genocide. Nothing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the problem. Mm. Um, I'm also concerned that Turkey is rising. At the same time, Armenia. It will come a day that Armenia will have to deal with Turkey, uh, whether as a rival or whether as an economic partner. There is no escape. Uh, because first of all, whether you like it or not, it is your neighbor. Yeah. Second, according to these trilateral agreements, as the roads will pass and now that nagorno karabakh problem is solved, according to Azerbaijan, according to Armenia and Russia not, then Turkey will say that, okay, we can open the border with Armenia and we can establish relations. And the Armenian government already, many government officials are saying that the border should be open because uh, this is the advantage of Armenia and so on. So I'm also worried that maybe in the future, the Armenian current government will say that, okay, let's put the the issue of recognition, at a lot uh, in the corner because we have to deal economic issues with Turkey and so on. I'm very concerned about that. And I'm also concerned that if the borders open, that Turkey will invest in Armenia. So Armenia will be dependent on Turkey economically. That's also another issue. Now, mm-hmm. Turkey is playing very smart diplomacy. It's typical like Machiavellian diplomacy. Uh-huh. While the, Ar- the Armenians are playing like the, the child who is barely able to walk. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
3: we can see you're very critical
0: of the <laughs> foreign policies of Armenia. Oh, It's so no, frustrating. It's, it's a good yeah. point.
3: I like the point you made about knowing the history of Armenia as well, knowing what the culture was not only about the genocide it's not i mean it it, it's a huge um wound in the history of the armenian people certainly but that doesn't mean that the armenians shouldn't talk about their identity before that yeah if not it's like we always mention and you you mention it a lot elisa it's your your actually your area of expertise that talking about that perpetuates the genocide actually because it's sort of erasing the culture and um
2: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly and also because now Azerbaijan and Turkey they are trying to revision all the history of Armenia saying that Armenians Armenians they do not exist they are Christian Turks or Christian Albanians or yeah, something like that's this crazy. Or, okay, So there's a lot of propaganda and it is state propaganda. Uh, This is why Armenia should also invest in this cultural diplomacy because Armenia can play cultural diplomacy well because it has a huge diaspora in the Middle East, in Islamic countries, in Europe. Um, uh, So also when it comes to IT, for example, it was the the TUMO, yeah, it's a big, um, let's say, uh, how should I say, it's something like a mix between IT and um, a research center uh it is Armenian initiated so they have a branch in Lebanon uh in uh, Paris and now they are trying i think create a branch or sector in uh, Japan this is also kind of soft power you know diplomacy with, with it or culture army should play with it
0: yeah absolutely and i have to say you know um you, you're talking about not mixing domestic and foreign policy and i think that's this is a really important point Um, But one of the things I've been so impressed with in my encounters with sort of the Armenian, let's say the Armenian um, embassy to the United Nations, right? The the Armenian delegation to the United Nations or the uh, foreign ministry that's organized the global forums uh, for genocide prevention is this sort of advocacy of universalism, this advocacy of sort of enlightenment values, you know, a sort of Armenian approach to those things. I think, um, you know, that would be, so maybe this shouldn't drive foreign policy because it becomes naive and it, it results in what you're saying—a sort of overreliance on the Western powers that have always failed Armenians. I, I have to—I mean, if you look at it historically, yeah. you know, it's not like they were coming to the help of Armenians in 1896 or 1915 so much. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so, but, but in terms of soft power, I think Armenian ha- Armenia has a lot to offer in that respect. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. So, well, yeah. I mean, this raises the other question of sort of anti-Armenianism, right? There's a rise in it worldwide. Here in the United States, there are mounting uh, hate crimes against Armenians, particularly in California, where there are these sort of large um, populations of Armenians. Uh, and you know, the more one learns about Azerbaijan, uh, it seems that sort of anti-Armenianism is incorporated into textbooks in schools, and it's sort of just a regular part of political life. And what role do you think anti-Armenianism is playing? and you know, how can we counteract anti-Armenianism around the world? Um, You know, it's anti-Armenianism has even in the United States been taken up by the radical white nationalists Mm -hmm. who ally themselves with Turkish people against Armenians. So it it becomes bizarre at a certain level. And I actually see it functioning somewhat in the way that anti-Semitism functions, Mm -hmm. where anti-Armenianism offers people this sort of cosmic enemy. The Armenian. Um, and and it's being taken up by people who have no direct relationship to it or state. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, actually, I was trying to reread uh, Stefan Ehring's book called uh, Justifying Genocide. Yeah. So it talks about um, how anti-Armenianism was deeply in the German radical Nazi party and so on anti-minority uh, now it is being re-emerged. unfortunately not just in the west but also in the east and so on so the minority is seen as a threat um you passed through this stage to some extent and now we see that it is again regenerating this concern and this is very concerning that uh, what we have seen happen to the jews i'm also afraid to see if something like this God for can happen maybe to the Arabs or the Muslims in Europe because there's always that the minority is a trap This is what also we saw in the US uh, during Trump's era and uh, Recently again, it was regenerated in Turkey and also during the Arab ring that in Iraq We saw the genocide against the Yazidis and the minorities in Syria. There was a cleansing uh, ethnic cleansing and sectarian cleansing God uh, knows Later, when uh, I don't know how we can cure this sickness, but I think that when it comes to the Armenian, maybe they should, especially the diaspora, it, uh, the diaspora organization, they should cooperate. First of all, they should try to go out from this isolation. That is to cooperate with the Kurds, with the Yazidis, with the Assyrians, with That's the great. Arab minorities. There should be a common front because, like racism, okay, it can um, touch maybe or address X group, then it. Uh, it will touch another group. Uh, racism does not recognize races; always against minority. So we are all minority at the end. Um, uh, there should also be, be not, uh, for example, I don't know, like uh, conferences or workshops in Armenia where Minorities, I mean, I don't like to use the minority group, I usually <laughs> prefer to use non-dominant. Because yes. even in level, uh, when uh, they cool. sell me Armenia, I'm like, I'm not a minority of the others. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We, we uh,
2: exactly. The
3: same we agree we with you. Always, we yeah. don't like the word minorities. We usually yeah. use groups, just groups. Yeah. It's, it's a different so group. Su-
2: yeah. Such groups, for example, I know can be invited to Armenia and they can, I don't know, uh, organize a big alliance of Indigenous groups, let's say. Uh, I remember because uh, it was in 2017, I think something like this, with few friends and organization, we actually did a conference in Lebanon. It was um, called the Indigenous People of Asia Minor, something like this, that we should unite with our rights. The Greeks, mm. Yazidis, the Alevis, yes. um, mm. uh, the Kurds, uh, even Turkish intellectuals, uh, leftist intellectuals, you know, we were like almost mm. more than 100 people. It was The idea was to oh, make a wow. parliament of these small people <gasps> in Asia Minor. Um, this idea still exists, and it is a wonderful idea, because in the end we cannot fight racism alone. The Armenians cannot fight anti-Armenism alone. They have to cooperate with the Jews, with the Arabs, with the Yazidis, with the Assyrians, with the Greeks. Because it is a common front, what is coming, the danger what, that is coming from Turkey. Even we need the cooperation of the Turkish people. Because at the end, we are not the, the victims. They are also the victims of an authoritarian yeah. regime. So exactly. we need their cooperation, and they need our cooperation. Um, the same goes to Azerbaijan, because we know that it is an authoritarian country, and all everyone, even the activists, are being silenced, and so on. So they need our help. Hmm. Uh, this is this is how we can maybe try to democratize. If democracy will come one day in the region, though I think it's uh, it's a very long path. But um, all the when it comes to act, the activists, the scholars, the researchers, even the people, they should cooperate.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. that
2: sort of fantastic. goes to, to the yeah.
3: question that I was going to ask. You yeah, you actually. go ask. I was going to ask you. How do you think the grassroots and the people could organize? Because of the Iraq project that the three of us, Elisa, Hoshman and I have founded and, and created for, to work in Iraq in particular, but we hope that eventually we'll expand and we can collaborate with other communities. It's just what you just said, it's working with the grassroots that are of different groups, ethnic. Uh, national groups, religious groups, etc., to come along and work against these big powers and also work as a bridge with the powers. We have to, uh, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, whether we agree, like you said, with their policies, etc., work along with them in order to uh, create new policies that are protected to the groups, create policies that are economically beneficial, to the country as a whole, etc. So I was going to ask you, what do you think in this difficult context of the region? What would be the role of scholars, activists, and civil society? But I think you just answered that with your point. So thank you. It was it was yeah. great.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would uh, like to ask you um, a question here yeah, about um, how to bring these people together. I mean, what is the best way? And um, um, what mechanism can be used. Because, you know, what you see is, although these groups, they they really fear the power of the rise of Turkey or maybe some other uh, powerful entities in the region, but at the same time, maybe not margins, a group, a good uh, segment of people within these groups works with with Turkey, too. You know, so Turkey tried to... um, Penetrate these groups via multiple, uh, you know, m- m- multiple means. Uh, for example, through money, through, you know, um, opening schools and giving them power within in Istanbul. You know, inviting them conferences. You know, like it shows itself on one side that it is a savior of the people there, and on the other side, you know, sh- we know what is going on. So, how how do you? What do you
2: think? What should what should these people do? Uh, yes, this is a bit tricky, and also we face these issues. Uh, I remember, for example, uh, 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 while inviting the Kurds, we discussed, because some of the Kurds, they were more inclined towards uh, Barazani, for example, politics. The others were pro-PKK. Uh, the pro-PKK were saying, for example, the intellectuals or the scholars were saying that we are in a war with Turkey, so we cannot uh, even work with the Turkish intellectuals. It's Mm, very uh, mm. because of uh, lack of confidence. We tried to build this conference. But at the same time, we realized that, for example, I'm just giving the example of the Kurds, that there was also a problem within the Kurdish community that um, because those who were uh, inclined towards the PKK saying that, uh, you know, those who are working with the uh, Barazani or the KRG are very have good relations with Erdogan and so on. So, you know, the trust that we built that is we want to preserve our culture, our values. So, both sides wanted to uh, to preserve their culture and values. We were like, okay, so we can cooperate. It's not saying that we want to build an alliance against Turkey. We want mm-hmm. to preserve our culture, our traditions, everything, and we all agree. The same, one, the same issue was within the Syriac and the Assyrian community because mm-hmm. many Assyrians say that They believe in the Assyrian nationalism, saying that you know all the Christians in Iraq are Assyrian. But the Syriacs say that there is no such thing as Assyrian; they they extinct centuries ago. So we all are Syriacs uh, or Aramaeans. So that was a very uh, debatable issue for us. We tried to ease the tension, saying that let's work on small steps. Uh, For example, I don't know. Let's talk about. the properties that uh, in the uh, Turkey or the Ottoman Empire that was confiscated by the Turkish government. All the properties, you know, not just the Armenians, the Greeks, the Alevis, and so on, so they all agreed. We didn't say that we want to establish, I don't know, a democratic Turkey or socialist or liberal or something like this, because this is a very tricky issue. So let's <laughs> talk, in, uh, for example, when it comes to the genocide, recognition, we try to lobby all of us in social media, in conferences, uh, in publications. Uh, we can do it small steps uh, but if we go if we take a big step from the beginning it will be very uh, disappointing and it will, be, it will have a clash because there are a clash of interests you are bringing like 10 to 20 different communities uh, within each community you have a lot of ideological uh, pets or uh, parties so it's very difficult it's almost impossible but if you can work in on a small project mm-hmm. or initiatives, mm-hmm. yet, it will be very easy yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great answer. Coalition building, you know, sort of organic agendas that come out of the conversations, you know. And ultimately, it, I mean, ultimately engaging with Turkey is really necessary, particularly with the Turkish people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Turkey is a regional power. That's not going to change, um, but you know it's, it's, it's very important that the government itself that ex, is expressing that power is not also expressing a genocidal ideology that follows older patterns. So you know, all that civil society change that was happening in the early 2000s, it seems very important that, yes. that we remember that. Uh, I don't know yeah,
2: now, I think Erdogan, in order to consolidate, consolidate his power, he needs the voters of the right wings. So, uh, Turkey yeah. will go more towards radical, towards mm-hmm. right wing politics, not just domestically, but also when it comes to regional politics. Uh, Erdogan, I mean, the, the Turkish government is made up, the AKP, uh, the Erdogan's mm-hmm. government, and also the MHP, which is uh, the Grey Wolf or the nationalist right wing party. So, it is a combination of... Um, very right-wing or radical, religious and nationalist uh, ideologists. This is very difficult. You can co- uh, contact or cooperate with such a government. No, you can't. Uh, and this and government, in order to feed itself, in order to survive, it is just propagating more hate speech because the, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is how maybe it can buy votes when it comes to election and mobilize the people, it, uh, its uh, partisans. So this is a good uh, strategy for this government. So it will continue like this
3: yeah we saw that when uh, now leaving the istanbul convention we just made a statement on yeah. that that's yeah. part of yeah. it of becoming more conservative mm-hmm. and radicalizing the the thoughts on, on this human rights treaties mm-hmm. um you just we, you were saying uh, the three of you reminded me of the, there's a scholar called uh catherine Sekink, i think yeah and she yeah she's 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 Wrote a lot. It's very interesting on this Boomerang theory of how to build bridges among um, among NGOs are and civil society organizations that are located in oppressive regimes, and how to find an ally in a country that on the opposite would respect human rights and therefore try to help the local NGOs in bringing their voice out to the world, etc. So I think, I mean, it's a difficult, difficult task. The region is very complex. But step by step, as you said, Jagia, and uh, I think the different communities, the different groups can find, not only locally but internationally, they can find allies, whether individuals, maybe governments, and also other NGOs that have that can be powerful enough to help them.
2: Mm. Yes,
1: definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a shame now. I mean, they are trying, uh, the, the um, public prosecutor in Turkey is trying to... Um, closed down or oh, it's the government but it asked the public prosecutor to make a case against the HDP HDP mm. is the third largest party in mm. Um, mm. Turkey but if, if it's just because if it's it is pro kurdish so they ha, they are trying to make um, any allegations possible that um, to to bring the party down and uh, say that it's part of um, it, be, it connects to the PKK, and uh, also they have uh, arrested uh, Saladin Demirtas and so the the the, um, the head of the the party, um, which the European Union uh, the um, um, the uh, European Court of Human Rights um, urgently asked Turkey to release Saladin Demirtas because there's no grounds uh, to um, for kind of holding him in prison and uh, but. Then they found another excuse that he actually uh, made some hate speeches against Erdogan, and he needs to, they, so they, they straight away after this, they gave him three and a half years sentence um, of a prison sentence. So this is the kind of, um, you know, the things going on in Turkey. And they try. What, what they do, they are trying to buy back all these voters from them uh, to, you know, in, in, through the religious kind of, um, we, we know it's Muslim Brotherhood, right? Uh, Erdogan is like that. So they, they wanted to um, bring all these votes back to um, AKP party. So on the one side, they work on the nationalists. On the other side, they work on the different communities through religion. So they will, give, they will try to leave no rooms for the less powerful groups. And then they will try to divide and rule them in different way, in any way they can, and uh, also they cooperate with other regional uh, groups to do that. So it, it is it is a shame. I mean, it's a very shameful. I, I'm I'm not sure if you are aware about this recent mm-hmm. the European Parliament's resolution asking Turkey to go from the north of Turkey, uh, from the north of Syria. So, and, yeah. yeah, so I don't know. Uh, this is all yeah very, very strange
2: yeah. and what is also more disappointing in turkey that even the secular opposition turkish political parties they aligned with erdogan when it comes to closing down or shut down the HDP. you know it's because i mean the problem is that th- that's a problem you know when you become a blind nationalist saying that Okay, we should all be against the Kurds, but at the same time, you don't. You should be aware that today is HDP, then tomorrow it is the Kemalist or the secular political mm-hmm. party that will be closed mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. So that is why the small groups yeah. must cooperate in, uh, with each other in Turkey in order to, host, if they can, Erdogan. But the problem they are very fragmented. Even in 2015, in June, when there was a general election in Turkey, and AKP brought less than 50 percent. The opposition group couldn't make a government. Otherwise, they could have ousted the AKP and maybe Erdogan would have been in prison now. But that's the problem.
0: It's a very frustrating situation because there's so little to do. It seems, you know, major powers are going to have to deal with this part of Turkey, NATO, the EU, Russia, you know. Uh, so and, and, and I don't know how, how how we can further encourage them uh, to do that, but it seems to me that major pressure will need to be placed on er- Erdogan and his government to uh, stop pursuing this um, this kind of expansion based in genocidal ideology. It's very problematic, I, you know, and and it's not covered well in the press, at least in the Western press. In the U.S., it's terrible, you know. Uh, it, there's there's a real bias towards Turkey, towards Azerbaijan, that was very evident. Um, So I'm hoping you'll speak a little bit about the Grey Wolves. This is really a terrorist organization and I think um, the world needs to know more about them and their activities.
2: Yeah, so it's the right, like the the youth wing of the MHP MHP, uh, in Turkey, which is like a nationalist political party. They have been a militarist political party, at, at the same time they were founded by the NATO during the 1980s, during the peak of the Cold War in Turkey. Um, they are anti-Kurdish, anti arabian anti-Greek, anti-minority to some extent. And they have also been involved in wars such as the first war, the Syrian war, so they send volunteers and they fight. Uh, They also believe in this Pan-Turkist dream that all this Turkish country like which stretches from Turkey, the Caucasus to Central Asia, even China and parts of Russia are part of Greater Turan or Greater Turkey. Um, They are very active. Uh, They also have very active branches in Germany, in Netherlands, in France, which was shut down I think recently a year ago or something. But, you know, they are underground organization and that's the problem for me, that if you shut down such an organization yeah. and when can, because underground, it is more dangerous because it is not public. So you have to make like, I don't know uh, how we can find, uh, we can fight a secret or very militarist and very radical organization. Uh, it is an active terrorist group because also this group or this political party or movement is also has a lot of fundraising and they are trying now to change the demography in northern syria and this is very dangerous because i was talking with syrian friends and now they are saying that the the demography of Idlib has been completely changed that uh, the young generation is now talking turkish and not arabic anymore When the war started in 2011, you know, they went to Mm -hmm. to the school and they just saw the Turkish flag and the Turkish language and they are singing the Turkish national anthem. Now, today is 2021, almost 10 uh, years later. They just know Turkey. They are working with the Turkish lira, so they don't feel uh, Syrian or Arab anymore. So, you know, you can incorporate very easily or recruit very easily such mercenaries. We saw that Turkey sent such mercenaries uh, to Libya uh, maybe in the future, I don't know, God forbid, in Greece or in Kashmir, in India, you know, this is a tool. And this is, uh, these channels or this um, link is done by the Grey Wolf F activists because, you know, the Turkish government is saying that we are not doing that. It is the Grey Wolf. Yeah. So they are trying to listen to this, but at the same time they are uh, working with such radical uh, organization. They have also another radical, uh, it's like a big... Uh, how should I say it's like uh, I forgot it's, it's called Sadat which is like the Blackwater it was the Blackwater which is the famous American yeah nursing nursing group. yes yes uh, Sadat? So they have Sadat which is which they train uh, people they train armies they train militias so they are now training a lot of Syrians and all the officers are either uh, former Nationalist generals or Grey Wolf members mm-hmm. uh, this is very dangerous and, you know, who, who knows that one day Turkey will not fund terrorist activities in Europe if, yeah. if there will be clash between Turkey and Europe. So Turkey can have some advantages to play this terrorist card against Europe. Uh, and... What I'm also worried that we see a European reaction against the min- uh, against the minorities and against the refugees instead of the Turkish radical groups. Yeah. So the, this will be a very advantage Turkey saying that you know the Europe is fighting a crusade against the Muslims, so we are defending the Muslims. So this is what Turkey is playing. This they are playing a very like clever, evil, clever card against Europe and us. Yeah. It's, it looks like yeah, the Great Wolves
3: are paramilitaries. Actually, yes. in somehow, uh, if they have any link to the government, which seems to be the case, uh, it's a paramilitary organization. I mean, that that happens a lot in 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 uh, authoritarian regimes. Actually, yeah. they they want to portray still an image of no, Very we're exact. not doing this, but we. We do it through a group that has its own identity.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, they yeah, have also assassinated a lot of journalists, activists. Even they tried to assassinate the jump-up uh, So in 1981, I think, something mm. like this, the pop. Mm. So, yeah, they have these networks already.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you remember that recently when the relationship between um, France and Turkey deteriorated, then France tried to bring these things up. Right? And then they, yeah. b- they uh, banned the group in France. So now this group is completely banned in France. And now, they, they after a conversation between uh, Macron and Erdogan, um, so they, they tried to bring the relation back to normal over the expenses of Kurds, because just about a couple of weeks ago, after all, they, they started to um, arrest the Kurds in, um, in France. So that is this is it's very, very strange. But be, um, I know um, just going out uh, within this kind of domestic or regional policy. D- don't you think there is a kind of um, a world war going on in Middle East through proxies? Because you know, in some ways, definitely um, that these major countries around the world, including China. Um, Russia, the United States, they all know what's going on, because they have their embassy, they have their forces there, they have companies, and then they interact on a daily basis. So they know exactly that there is a lot of uh, kind of um, violations, mass human rights violations is carried out against the less powerful powerful groups in the region including the north of Syria, includes, like, some parts of Iraq. So why they they just try to jeopardize, you know, they try to turn their blind eye on these, all this situation, and they give a, a, a kind of green light to Turkey um, in some ways? Is it like they just, um, is it for, do you think, short or temporary interest? Or maybe it's just going on to be like this, and Turkey will become, as you have, Outlining the new article, it's like a very big map in the next 20-30 years. Probably, it's a been, Turkey will have a size of Europe of land in the next 20-30 years by expanding its influence beyond its borders.
2: Uh, just uh, also to add, when it comes to France, few, uh, few years ago, Turkey also assassinated t- three Kurdish women activists, hmm. activists in yeah. France, and the France until now is silent. So it means that the Turkish intelligence is working very well. They are swimming in France and other European countries. Uh, when it comes to the Middle East, yes, definitely there is a proxy war and it's a very dangerous war because the minorities are the ones are paying the price.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: we saw what happened to the Yazidis. We saw that the whole uh, Christian civilization in in Iraq is being mm-hmm. whipped out. We saw in Syria and we are also mm-hmm. worried it will happen one day in Lebanon and so on. Uh, when it comes to Turkey, uh, yes, I said in the article that Turkey is expanding, but also it is up to China, India, and uh, Russia. I'm mm-hmm. sure that it is not in the interest of these three countries to see Turkey expanding. Yes, Russia is cooperating, but also their interest because that if Turkey expands in Caucasus and further mm-hmm. in Central Asia, then it means that Russia will be a very weak country. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. So this is not in the interest of Russia. Same for China, if Turkey yeah. expands to Central Asia, then it means that uh, the Xinjiang province in China will be threatened. So the whole territory integrity of China will be threatened if Turkey expands more in Central Asia. Then India will be threatened because you have the Kashmir case. You have uh, maybe Turkey will be sending mercenaries to Pakistan through uh, to Kashmir. So uh, Turkey is like a bubble; it is becoming larger, larger, but you know it has its limits. It cannot go up. So it's Mm -hmm. like the Ottoman Empire, it reaches peak and it will go down. This happens with all the empires. Um, Also, let's say that Turkey doesn't have a lot of uh, resources when it comes to financing its army because it doesn't have a lot of economic uh, resources. Its Mm -hmm. its economy is limited. It has Mm a currency problem. Um, It has domestic issues, the human rights violations, the Mm -hmm. Kurdish issues. Uh, So, uh, as I said, it's a bubble. It's becoming uh, Mm -hmm. bigger, but
1: one day it can explode. We don't know.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But it's a member of NATO, though, and yes, he, uses, he, uses, he uses the kind of NATO's, uh, NATO's tanks in some of its you know, activities in the region.
2: Yes, but also like until when Turkey will try to balance between the NATO and the Russian interests, mm. there will become a day that these both mm-hmm. interests will try to uh, have a conflict. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Let's say that if in Ukraine a war will happen, God forbids mm-hmm. again between Russia and the West. Turkey cannot take a neutral uh, step or mm-hmm. saying that oh ha. we have to cooperate with the Russians, to with the uh, NATO. They have to take a position. Yeah. If something happened in uh, Syria, definitely they will clash with the uh, Russian interest. If another war now, for example, happens in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is not in the interest of Russia, so there will be a clash between the Turkish and the Russian interests, because according to trilateral agreement. Peace will happen, and then Russia, Armenia, and uh, Azerbaijan will decide the future of Artsakh, and not Turkey. Um, So, yeah.
0: That is very clarifying. Thank you so much, and very important to keep in mind. Present-day power does not always mean future power, and things can change rather quickly. And this sort of leads into um, a question that Irena had. Irena is a human rights lawyer and also an international legal scholar. And so she, her question for you is, um, in light of a new anniversary of the Armenian genocide, how do you think the lack of general international and judicial recognition of the genocide influences contemporary Turkish regional politics? So in other words, what's the role of... Um, Genocide recognition, impunity, and an absence of kind of legal processes, on um, on either constraining uh, or empowering Turkey.
2: The problem is that if Turkey now, let's say, let's assume that Turkey has recognized the Armenian genocide. Then Turkey as a state will disintegrate. And that's the problem that many Turkish nations are saying. Because mm-hmm. if they will recognize the Armenian genocide, and then the Greeks and the ASEAN and the Kurds will say that, OK, we have also our genocides. So, as you know, as the Turkish youth who was or brainwash saying that turkey is a mighty power it, it has a very good history and so on and then we we'll say oh my god what i was doing was all mistake and a lie so they will start to question their identity and for this you know the turkish whole state and the identity the national identity will disintegrate mm-hmm. or this is for them like it's a, either a death or a life issue for turkey um and also the, there is the problem that if turkey classes one day then went what will happen regarding the compensation Still, Armenia is not clear. What do we want from Turkey? The diaspora says that we want territorial compensation according to a treaty of which is a bit... Okay. Um, um, What what, what about the... I I want to visit my ancestors' land, but I I want also to be realistic about it. Uh, I wish, I don't know, maybe there are a lot of ways in international law that can deal, uh, deal with border or territorial issues. It's a bit difficult. Because there's a geopolitics and everything in it. Also, when it comes to financial compensation, okay, that's more easier maybe. But you know, like in, at the end, Armenia must try to take the initiative and not the Armenian diaspora. Because according to the international law, it is the state that represents the interests of the nation, not the diaspora or political party. Um, maybe the International Criminal Court or something. I don't know. Uh, so I'm not an international law expert. I cannot comment on that. Um, but at the same time. Uh, also maybe Armenia should look uh, beyond west because this is what I was pushing that maybe uh, the Armenians would try to lobby uh, in the Middle East more. Uh, also uh, in India because India is a friendly to some extent. Uh, I, I will not say China because it is very difficult uh, to lobby in China but at least India it can be a, st- uh, a good uh, choice maybe. Um, but it's not about also just general recognition, but also to raise awareness. So if, for example, Turkey will recognize the genocide and everything will be uh, good, and then if we see uh, more genocides, it means that mm-hmm. we haven't reached our goal. Our goal mm-hmm. is to stop the genocide. Maybe if Turkey had recognized the genocide 100 years ago and something, the Holocaust would not have uh, Yes, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If the Holocaust would not have done, reco- uh, maybe we, we would have seen more genocides in Rwanda, in Sri Lanka, in uh, Bangladesh, in, in Iraq, and so on. So, the more you deny the genocide, the more will happen because it will be like something for granted. Okay, I kill the people. Okay, no one will punish me. That's the problem. There should be international lobbying about this. It's not just about the Armenian genocide or genocide of an X or a Y ethnic group, but it's because the more we see ethnic cleansing or more this destruction, the more we will see like. Instability in the region.
0: Mm-hmm. There
2: will not be there will not be any peace um, If I don't know if the war in Artsakh will continue Then it means that there will be more ethnic cleansing or more wars in Laguna But a recognition of the genocide uh, Will at least give a chance to the perpetrators Perpetrator saying that okay at least he or she will think twice that okay I cannot organize a crime or ethnic cleansing others. I will be punished. So I have to think twice about that.
3: Yes, certainly yes yeah this is this is what you pointed out is very important it it takes uh, geopolitics play an important role when it comes to international human rights and international crimes Uh, it's not always it's difficult to enforce these treaties because of geopolitics again so and politics in general also internal politics but definitely the recognition and I was thinking more, I don't think Turkey will recognize, at least in the future of our lives, will recognize the Armenian genocide. I don't think it will, um, because of economic reasons. But I think maybe the main reason is the one you pointed out, is the identity. They would have to start over with their identity as as a as Turkish people, right? As Turkey, as a nation. But also... Um, but I think international recognition is important. Many, many countries haven't recognized it, right? And I'm thinking at the moment of Israel, for example, who which hasn't recognized the Armenian genocide as a genocide, right? And many others. And uh, so I think, as you said, that the international community individually and globally needs to do so with every genocide, indeed. Yeah, very, very good point. Thank you, Jegia, for this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is... A- yeah, you say the word that legal is very important, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the lawyers and the jurists should listen to it, and they should, you know, I think we, we it's very important for us as, uh, as uh, our organization strives uh, to prevent genocide. And uh, of course, I mean, if, you, if the genocide are not recognized against these groups, that means it becomes something normal Mm -hmm. and it will happen again and again so uh, thanks for that thank you very much
0: so to sort of end um we have one last question for you uh which is uh, uh, our listeners will know from your bio that you're involved in many many different things and i was So delighted and surprised to see that, you know, among your many other roles, you're also a regional officer for the Paris-based NGO Women in War. So we would love to hear more about your work in this capacity, your thoughts about gender and peacebuilding in the Middle East specifically or more generally. Just anything you want to tell us about Women in War and the work you're doing for them.
2: Uh, So I joined in 2015. I mean, the founder of the think tank is Dr. Mann from Paris. Um, So we have organized many conferences, seminars and workshops. I mean, uh, my first experience was in Lebanon uh, about the war and gender politics. And then we have organized a conference in Yerevan about the genocide. Uh, I mean, I remember it was a very enormous, uh, big conference around 51 or 52 participants uh, came and we talked about the genocide and also the future, the tools to prevent a future genocide. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. uh, during the, I I remember it was in 2016 and ISIS still was occupying Mm -hmm. parts of Mosul and there was the Yazidi and the Assyrian not just the physical, but also the cultural genocide that took place in Syria and Iraq. We, uh, that was my paper. I remember I talked about that issue. Later, we also organized a conference in um, uh, Odessa in Ukraine, and before that, they had also organized a conference in Bosnia.
1: Um
2: So it's uh, so uh, most of these conferences were actually in war zones uh in order also to uh, make an, some form of alliance and cooperation between grassroots uh, activism mm-hmm so because our target was always to balance between scholar academia and at the same time activists because we, mm-hmm. we Like as, as scholars we also need to hear the voice of the experts the field workers yes. Those who have endured this pain and so on and not just talk about the theories
1: exactly.
2: and this is a great idea because this um, uh, This idea also pushed me that when it comes to genocide and war we should also take into consideration uh, The violence against the minorities the women and the children uh i mean this was the case for example in laguna Galapal, that i'm reading the articles after the war you know rarely people have touched uh the gender aspect of the conflict. rarely people have touched about the pain of the mothers they have just for example yeah. uh, published about the numbers of those who are killed but you know these mothers have lost their mm-hmm. sons their husbands mm-hmm. um, yes so we should raise this issue because it's em, becoming emotional is also important uh maybe this will try to ease the pain at the same time they will open the hearts of the conflicting parties uh so we are working in this uh, direction and we have also other projects for example we are also working how the pandemic actually try uh, influence on the gender mm-hmm. aspects or the gender role uh, in our countries from the u.s to the middle east and so on uh so yeah
0: wonderful that is wonderful we're big fans of that approach and we're big fans of the work that you're doing (laughs) wonderful (laughs) yes uh, you have our full support it's
3: always very nice to see um having this gender perspective you know especially Mm -hmm. today well not today it should have been always like this but unfortunately there's so much inequality and as you mentioned the pandemic we've in our last podcast we addressed this that pandemic and inequality and I think we did actually forget to mention mm-hmm. how it has affected women enormously, yes. much more than it has affected men. Also, because in all social classes, also because uh, in, in many cases uh, women have lost their jobs. In other mm-hmm. cases, because uh, women uh, are loaded with uh, work at home, and they had to still continue to do the work mm-hmm. that they did before. So it's it's terrible. So I'm glad. I'm I'm really happy to hear the what you do with the women in war.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. One of our pet peeves is this debate amongst scholars about being too political or politicization, as if pretending that that we can occupy a position that has no relation to power isn't in and of itself political, right? So you either yeah. build the bridges and walk across them or you ignore them, but they're there, right? There is a link always to politics, right? We're yeah. all incorporated. Knowledge is about also these power hierarchies. And so, I don't know, our approach is, as you may guess, is more to embrace that be aware of yeah. it be critical of it always critically minded um, but yeah. not to ignore it
2: exactly I mean and now what is happening with the drone warfare that every country now is investing in drone yeah. and this is also a problem mm-hmm. because when it comes to gender drone does not differentiate differentiate yeah. women from men and children so it's like we are there is yeah. a de-genderification of war in the future. Yeah. Maybe we should have a international conventions even for the drone use. I don't know.
3: Yep. Yeah. Oh, certainly. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. yeah I think that they're the working on it. It's very important, certainly, yeah. because no one has responsibility either. Yeah. Who's 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 yeah. using the drone? Who was behind exactly. the drone? Yeah. How to determine? Yeah. Yeah. What is the origin of the drone? It's made in China. Yeah. Where did it came from, for example? <laughs> exactly. yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or made in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. very complex.
1: It's a robot army, isn't it? Well, they they try to um, scary. create an army from robots, but then uh, for some reasons they didn't implement it in the in the war. Although right. in some uh, uh, probably it is used maybe to an extent mm-hmm. in some places uh, through different ways, but not an actual army itself because they didn't differentiate between between mm. those who wear like long dresses. Yeah. And uh, someone who is, you know, like Muslims or maybe those who are uh, religious who wear dresses. So, you know, like this is a problematic, as you said. You know, the drones are part of it. Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, this will be the future. That will be the, we will not see soldiers, but we will see robot soldiers. And the robot cannot differentiate between a child or a man or a woman. So mm-hmm. it means that there will be more crimes if there will be not be uh, if, if we lack any international convention at least to limit. Yeah. The technologification after the war, maybe, or something like this. I don't know.
3: We have a saying in, in Argentina, in Spanish, that it says, it's, uh, La realidad supera la imaginación. And that means that reality, it actually over overcomes uh, imagination, right? Yeah. Because mm, an mm. army of robots only came in, in movies, right? But no, reality yeah. is always yeah. actually more complex yeah. than yeah. our imagination. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well. We all have our work cut out for us, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Yigdia, we do not want to um, exploit your time. (laughs) We've got 18 (laughs) minutes over, and this has been such a wonderful interview, really informative, really uh, thought-provoking, just absolutely fabulous. Um, So we want to thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. And,
3: and also let,
0: uh, let you an, an open invitation for another
3: time. Hopefully we'll have you.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely.
3: Yeah. Thank absolutely. you. absolutely. absolutely.
1: And uh, especially at this very difficult time for you. Thank you very much. Yeah. It yeah. is very great for you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
0: Yes. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks uh, to our listeners for tuning in with us today. We are the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Patreon iTunes now as well as on our website thearacproject.org. We hope you will consider subscribing and we hope you will join us next time as well and join us in once again thanking Yejiatatian for his wonderful, yes, thank wonderful you. appearance thank you. here today. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you thank guys. You. Thank you.